I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to Chinchilla Squeaks with me, Chris Chinchilla. No interview today because it is an IFA roundup special international funk ausstellung. I guess Europe's uh, CES, a kind of consumer electronics gone wild here in Berlin every year. I was back for the first time in a couple of years and I'm going to report back from the show floor there. But first, let's just get a few other links and bits and pieces out of the way. Before I begin with the links, there's not many ads this episode. You might have noticed they've been uh, sneaking in the past few. I've joined that uh, that rodeo. I don't know if that's the right word. It'll do. But I'm not going to put any in this week because I'm actually looking for something else. This show has been running for some time. I've had hundreds of interviewees, <laughs> thousands-ish, of, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I'm not completely sure, of listeners and uh, I think 200 and something episodes, I would really like it if you like the show to share it wherever you happen to listen or wherever you happen to listen, leave a review, please. I need some more reviews, just ratings or a comment. Very, very appreciated. If you've been on the show, if you've listened to the show for a long time, if you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes, please rate, review and share. Very much appreciated. First, this is an article from Jason Snell, a well-known name in the Macosphere. So this is most definitely a Mac article talking about how the iMac saved Apple back in, I guess it's about 98 and then onwards. People think of the iPhone as, well, it really financially saved the company. But it was a few years before that where they had to come back from the brink of irrelevance and bankruptcy. And the iMac was definitely part of that. It's sort of now a waning product. But uh, I remember, I, I don't think I had the first one, the Bondi G3, Bondi Blue, but I definitely had the one just after that. I had a green one for some time. I had an eMac for a while. That wasn't translucent. Similar form factor, a bit bulkier, designed for education. I had one of the flat screen white iMacs at one point. I think I even had one of the lamp ones at some point. I loved that. So I had a lot of iMacs in my life until I switched to laptops. I also used to actually work doing Mac support. And I remember equipping entire labs with iMacs and iMacs. So they're a very fondly remembered product to me. Uh, the ports, the CD drive, the lack of a floppy disk drive. I had a floppy disk drive USB for a while. Um... And I don't know, I think there was a, a sort of whimsy and a charm to them that Apple products are good now, but they've lost that sort of whimsical charm, maybe the, the translucent colors and things like that. Their colors are usually quite muted. And it really did. It didn't, it didn't make Apple into the financial powerhouse it is now. That is definitely the iPhone, but it definitely brought it back and made it credible and relevant and genre defining again. Uh, and I think now nearly... 30 years roughly since it came in, give or take a few years. Uh, well, I don't know if it's happy birthday, but it's certainly time to remember it and, and probably see a product line that won't be updated anytime soon. It sort of lingered and languished at the bottom of Apple's product release cycle for some time. 
but uh, I remember it fondly. And um, I think it always has a special translucent sort of uh, TV-shaped spot in my heart. I don't really know what to call that shape, but I think you know what I mean. Next, an article from Keaton Brandt over on Medium, but I've been reading a couple of articles around this, and I've talked about it a lot. And in this article is a little different. It's an elegy, a eulogy. I'm not even sure if what's the right word there for certain Mac apps, uh, certain specific ones that don't exist anymore because they've been replaced by web services, cross-platform options, that kind of thing. And I guess talking about how some of the applications we currently maybe love or take for granted, especially as old school Mac users, may not last much longer and may go the same way if we're not, uh, I don't know, if we're not, if we're not careful, if, we, if we're not more choosy, I'm not really sure. Um, and in addition to talking about, of course, the proliferation of electron-based applications, which is usually where I start talking about this subject at the moment, it also talks about even some of Apple's attempts, past and present, to create cross-platform experiences. Previously, this was things like Coco, and now it's things like Catalyst, which even for Apple's own tool is not always massively successful. You've also had things like Java, like Qt, and all sorts of other options for creating these cross-platform applications. And not all of them really ever end up sticking around because they're not loved that much. You're either sort of forced to use them or you end up just going to a website instead and then we come back into the, the same trap again of, um, well, if there's no point in making an app, then why make one? And so it doesn't completely overlap with some of my thoughts. I've been thinking a little bit around this topic recently and then the aspect of um, business use before user use, uh, business focused before user focused, where user focus will be making the most optimal applications for every platform. So every user has a great experience. And there are people who do this. Business focused is kind of what we're seeing a lot of. Well, let's not worry about that. Let's just create a cross-platform version that's all right and ship it out to people because what choice do they have? Uh, and that is what we see happening quite a lot at the moment. And um, I don't know if it's really going to change. I think creating the beautiful boutique applications optimized to each platform is really more of an independence game. And there are very few that do it well for every platform they tend to specialize on particular ones and that's again for a reason so yeah it's strange how now you can have these wonderful native indie applications usually made by a very small team and probably making very minimal money and then everything made by big business is kind of app design by committee basically and it's just cross-platform kind of lowest common denominator in most Cases There are some exceptions where they work better than others, like VS Code or Obsidian, for example, but for the most part. And I suppose I'm just pleased to say I'm not the only one who thinks this, but I think we're one of a very small group of people who actually care, sadly. On the subject of native applications, this is something from David McDonald. And uh, I used a little bit of research for a video I'm just about to edit together. And I've been looking for music notation applications for iPad and Mac OS, ideally that synchronize. And this is an article that digs specifically into the iPad ones. And to be honest with you, I won't kind of spoil the, the, the surprise here for when I release the video, which I'll probably talk about on the next episode. But um, 
He mentioned an, uh, an app that I had dismissed and I went back to it after reading this and it actually ended up being the, the catalyst, the key component in the tool chain that I will now document in this video and a blog post. So I'm very thankful to this. And the writer actually has an entire website available at scoringnotes.com where there's lots of roundups and reviews of musical notation software for learning and creating, which is a world I've been getting more and more into recently of actually creating proper musical notation as opposed to kind of MIDI and guitar tab. I find it especially helpful for the, the drum work. I do. And uh, I want to digitize my practice PDFs. And that is what I've been able to do with this new tool chain. And thanks to David for helping me figure out some of the components there. Next, an interesting article from Greg M. Epstein over on MIT Technology Review about the rise of tech ethics congregations. And this I found interesting. It goes into many different levels, but I suppose it was interesting because there's this wider discussion around tech ethics and how governments and various bodies are trying to figure out what that may mean. So I found it fascinating that these kind of old school arbiters of what is right and wrong and ethical, i.e. religions, and we can leave alone the argument about whether religions are really ethical for another day. Um, but, you know, these old school bodies that people would turn to are actually starting to um, preach, to 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 speak, to, to lobby, I don't know, around the ethics of tech to their congregation. And he mentions one particular pastor here, a David Ryan... Polgar about how he's been talking about these risks to his his flock. And so I found this 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 kind of interesting aspect that we're at the moment expecting tech ethics to be the domain of these um, ivory tower organizations and maybe actually grassroots spreading of conversations around it, churches, schools, social groups is actually the better place. And they are probably already happening, maybe influenced by some of these larger conversations, but they're actually likely to have far more impact, really, aren't they? Because these are people that, quote unquote, normal people listen to for advice and guidance. And when someone tells them, you know, consider what services you're signing up for, consider what information you share online, tell your children, etc., um, this is actually something that's more likely to have change. And it reminds me of, uh, so I'm living in Berlin, but we used to live in Leipzig. And uh, the the sort of reunification of Germany campaign was very strong in Leipzig. And there was a lot of what they called silent revolutions, which took place in churches, because churches at the time were actually a uh, uh, an opposer to the, the communist regime. And they called them these silent revolutions because they were not aggressive. They were just people slowly spreading the word amongst their community about what was wrong and right. So, yeah, whilst it comes, I suppose, you know, your allies often come from the strangest of places. So people who've been calling for tech ethics are probably not always going to be the most religious people. But if religious institutions happen to be your allies in this case, then I guess you shouldn't dismiss them anyway. I found it interesting. Have a read. The article goes into more angles than I've covered, but that was the sort of the aspect that interested me the most. And finally, this loops back to a talk I had with Innes a couple of episodes ago and some more I'm lining up very soon and um, some other work I'm actually also doing at the moment 
on sustainability in computing. And the W3C has released Web Sustainability Guidelines version 1. So this is done to get formalized. A lot of the discussions I had with Innes and other people is kind of best practices put in formal. So now we have a standards body, the standards body for the web, releasing draft standards. I haven't read it in full yet. I'm going to add that to the reading list over the next few days. But it's amazing to see that it has happened in a world where we just got used to keep throwing resources at things to solve problems with time that we stopped to think about the unintended consequences of all of that. And in this particular case, that's the environment. So it's amazing to see and something I'm trying to be more involved with, but I'm always trying to be involved with so many things. Sometimes <laughs> it's hard to keep up with it all. Before I get onto my IFA coverage, just another quick note. Yes, if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, share. Very, very appreciated. And uh, without any further ado, let's get into IFA. It has been a few years. I'm generally only interested in a small subset of what's on display at IFA, but there's enough there for me to be interested. There's IFA Next, which is usually about startups, and that's definitely of interest to me. Also, this year... Startup night was scheduled on the Friday night of IFA, which was, I don't know if that was good timing or not, but they're kind of rolling the coverage all into one. So there's a lot from all of those. Uh, and then there's the kind of consumer production tech I'm always interested in myself, computer technology, cameras, microphones, that kind of thing. And I definitely found some of that there. So I'm just going to kind of run through the various things I saw that interested me. First, and I did actually interview them, but the audio just did not come out very well, unfortunately, from the floor. The Fairphone 5 was released about the same time as IFA, the fifth version of the phone from the Dutch company that aims to have a phone that is majority user replaceable, long-term maintained, replaceable batteries, replaceable modules, all this kind of thing. It's a little bit more on the expensive side of devices, but not terrible. It's a little bit bulkier, but I'm seeing them more and more, especially in Europe, which I think is probably a good sign and a good sign that uh, people are willing to buy them, though the specs are increasing. I now see like a three camera array and all sorts of things. Actually, let's let's have a look through some of the specs just to get a rough idea. So it has a five year warranty, which is becoming more standard, especially from a software perspective, but not universal, especially for hardware. And that includes software updates up to 2031. So that is under 10 years. 70% of fair and recycled materials. I think that 30% really highlights, 30% isn't really highlights. There's a couple of core materials in smartphones that are extremely unethical and unsustainable. And it's very hard to replace them despite everyone's best efforts. But they're trying the majority. OLED screen, so some of the best components. They also mentioned to me they've decided to pick a Qualcomm processor that isn't specialized to mobile usage, which I found interesting because it also means that that will be supported longer. It's outside of the kind of usual quick short cycles of releases for other mobile designed processors. So that was an interesting decision. I'll see if I can find the model here. The Qualcomm QCM 6490 and it's mostly used in industrial aspects that is what they told me in the interview anyway i don't see it on the web page but that's what they told me in the interview uh and that was an intentional decision which i found interesting 
and almost anybody can repair things if they want. One point I took from them which I found interesting is that you can replace components, but they all have to be bought from Fairfine themselves, which is it's a little bit printer and printer ink, but I suppose not quite. I'm, I don't know if they have any kind of legal framework that would stop people making copies of those. Hard to say. Um, that was something I take slight issue with maybe i also wonder how easy it really is to replace some of these things obviously the battery is pretty easy but the camera units and things like that uh, i sort of wonder but i guess someone buying this is probably going to be on the techie side of an enthusiast anyway so um yeah and i actually saw this in the flesh i saw someone i'm not sure if it was with the four or the five I was playing a game with them and they were swapping the batteries around and it's been so long since I've seen someone swap a battery on a phone. It was quite amazing to see. And I think their whole intention is to basically create a device that people don't want to give up in a hurry as well. This is kind of the point. You need to make it spec enough and supported for long enough that people won't want to replace it. So you pay a slightly higher price for the specs, but you'll probably keep it for longer. And obviously it's aimed at people who are willing to do that. They also now have a pair of headphones that look quite a lot like some of the headphones I have in front of me. They also claim lots of parts can be replaced, including the pads, which I think is pretty normal on high-end headphones. I've replaced the pads on my Sennheisers uh, twice, actually, uh, or maybe two different pairs, not, not the same pair twice. I don't know about the other parts you can replace. It also looks like the band, the cables, all those sorts of things, which are usually more hardwired in on... Uh, Generally on headphones, these are at 250 whereas I think my Sennheisers, I don't know, I got them half price at 100 So I guess they're similar price new. Um, I, I've never needed to replace any of the other parts. I don't know if I can or can't, but um, I don't know. High-end headphones is something I, I don't think I've replaced them that much. I replaced these Sennheisers because there was a problem with them. The battery ran out and they replaced them for free. And ever since that, I haven't had to replace them apart from the earbud pads. So I don't know. I don't know how often people need to replace headphones, but with these, you can just replace the parts that are broken, which from observation tends to be the band, I think goes, or the covering around the band seems to be the thing that goes for most people after the pads. But all in all, an interesting company with interesting products. And I love the fact they exist and I hope they do continue to exist. They're small. They only release phones every few years, which is kind of the point. And I love the fact they're just on their own their own path <laughs> and wish every success to them. Continuing along the Aoife Next kind of path, uh, actually Fairphone were not in the Aoife Next bit, but I'm just kind of, uh, I've got my own organization here I'm doing. Yeah, the hall looked a little bit empty. I have some photos in the text version of this where you can see some pictures. It could have been the timing with all the other things that weekend, or it could have been something else, hard to say. But it was a little empty with a very large contingent of French and Korean tech companies. Nothing, they just booked a lot of space. So it made them rather dominant in the space. First thing that caught my eye was something from Inveil Studio. I have mentioned a few times, especially on video, that I use a Stream Deck for controlling all sorts of shortcuts in applications. And there's other options here. Loop Deck is one, and Inveil is another one that is mostly aimed at video editors. It's Windows only. A lot of these come with control applications that you need to map to the keys. 
uh, and it's Windows only. I'm sure someone will find a way to reverse engineer that if there's enough demand. So it's not something I'd probably be buying until they make it work on Mac as well. But uh, so it's nice to see other options. And it's got a slightly different form factor from things like the Stream Deck and the Loop Deck as well. Actually, it looks a bit more like the Loop Deck, to be honest with you, because it's also, I think, more aimed at purely video, whereas the Stream Deck is all sorts of things. Sort of similar, but from a music perspective, was Jouet. It was like a MIDI controller that you could put different uh, tactile pads on, and then you could play MIDI instruments like the instruments they were simulating, so a piano keyboard. You could swap it out with guitar strings, with a with drum pads, this kind of thing. I found it quite fun. I have no idea on the pricing. I think it's mostly aimed at education. And that base box is relatively large for the flexibility it gives, but still, I found it kind of uh, cool as an interesting idea. Switching out from the IFA next part, there was a lot of other interesting companies, but they're the ones I decided to include in my roundup. A lot of health tech, actually, varying aspects of that. Um, and sustainability tech, green tech, reusable containers, reusable blenders was an interesting one. And that kind of thing seemed to be dominant. Uh, a lot of e-bikes as well. Heated lunchboxes seemed to be a big trend that I didn't entirely understand. But there was a lot of those. Um, and I think one of the first booths we came across, uh, hosted by some very friendly Dutch people, they had a smart curtain opener, which... I don't think it was something I'm interested in, but they had this little booth set up where the guy would like step out and give you a compliment, which was kind of a wonderful piece of marketing uh, trickery, if, in, if, if nothing else. Switching back to some of the more mainstream, kind of straddling between Next and the main holes, which I guess is also Fairphone, was a SwitchBot. SwitchBot S10 is actually a robot vacuum. SwitchBot started as a company making uh, IoT-enabled switches for people who live in places where they can't necessarily retrofit everything. And they sent me one ages ago that was a little kind of mechanical arm that would stick on a light switch and you could toggle it on and off. And I couldn't really get it to work with the light switches we have in our apartment, so it's in a drawer somewhere. They still do that, also curtain openers, window openers, all that kind of thing, but now they've branched out into other things. And one of them was a smart vacuum cleaner. There's a lot of smart vacuum cleaners at IFA. I actually really love our Roborock. But the interesting thing about the SwitchBot one was it came in different sizes. A lot of them all seem to be the same sort of size, which is about kind of foot and a half uh, across. And these ones came in different sizes, including very small, which would be great for small apartments in Europe and in certain parts of Asia as well. So I found that interesting. It won't have the capacity, of course, but if it's a small apartment, that doesn't really matter anyway. So it's interesting just to see people thinking about different form factors. The Insta360 Go 3 is a very popular 360 camera, action camera, in some of the communities I hang out in. And I saw a little trial of that where you could clip the camera to yourself, you could clip it to sticks, you could swing it around, you could do all sorts of things with it. I was a little disappointed with the video quality it would take. It's only compressed, but... Um, I guess for certain use cases, it doesn't really matter. What you're, what you're capturing in the moment is far more important than the video quality. And you couldn't really connect it as an external camera, but I guess that goes against the, the point of it anyway. But a cool little micro camera uh, for certain use cases. Switching back to some creator hardware, there was a company called J5 Create I found that I really liked. They're actually an OEM. Now, let's explain this a little bit. IFA is full, full 
of mostly Chinese companies who sell these very generic parts to other companies. You walk around some of these halls and you'll recognize bits and pieces you've seen in Amazon and other stores branded with different names and you realize they're all kind of made by the same companies and just sold on to other companies to brand their way. Well, J5 is a company that does this, but they, they do it for other people, but they also make their own hardware, which means that they have quite good quality hardware, but at a very reasonable price. And I was particularly interested in some HDMI capture devices they had. I'm currently using Elgato ones, and they had very similar looking ones for about a third of the price, and also multi-channel switcher ones as well, probably for a third of the price of something like an ATEM or a, or a higher end um, Elgato device as well. And I definitely bookmarked them. Um, also SSD enclosures, all these kind of things, just good quality, um, but at a much better price. And I think this is the always the interesting thing with events like IFA. A lot of these very generic brands you see on websites and to be actually to go and look at them and try them and realize it's hard to know whether you could trust some of these products when you just see them in listings and to actually try them and realize that this is actually pretty good is, is sometimes interesting. Let's start with a, another kind of, uh, I think, I'm not sure where it's made, but it was quite a hit at uh, one of the media days, but also on the show floor. This was from Mobile Pixels. They had these different combinations of portable fold-out screens to take traveling with you for your laptop. They had like one that folded up and then gave you two wings on either side and also a fold-up, fold-down screen as well. In each case, you could make them you know, one big screen or two separate screens. The resolution of them was a little low, but I guess they're made for portable use. So you don't necessarily take them for the quality, you take them for the convenience. But the demos were getting a lot of videos. I actually posted a video on my YouTube channel. You could see the, the winged one in action because it's a very visual thing for people to appreciate. I don't think I would buy one, but again, I love the fact they exist and that the company is trying something a little bit different. Finally, let's talk robots. There was a house of robots, which turned out to be about four different robots, and they weren't very interesting. They were all pretty normal ones, like novelty ones that just danced around, or the kind of dog-like ones we've seen for a while. Pepper has finally left the building. I think it's actually not even supported anymore by the company that made it, but you still see it popping up. But the one that actually interested me the most was the Mirokai. This was made by a French company used primarily for service in hospitals and things like that. It rolls around on a large ball. It has very strong arms, but a very friendly, customizable face with expressions for sort of comforting people whilst it carries things around for the humans. Um, that's about it, really. But it just stood out because it looked different from all the others. And the ball, I think, was especially a part of that. And it gives it, it's going to get stuck on stairs, I suppose, but it gave it a different uh, a different angle if you forgive the pun the only other robot there that we enjoyed was a robot that made us a drink it did it very slowly it charged us quite a bit of money and the drink wasn't that good so it was like a lot of bars in berlin so there's hope for humans yet but again you can find a quite popular video i made of that on youtube let's do a quick whistle stop tour around startup night and then i'll wrap up for the episode first was reflex aerospace a small company making small satellites satellite business is big <laughs> it's actually pretty big and it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to the point that now you can now have companies like reflex 
who can make bespoke small-sized satellites very, very quickly for a pretty reasonable price. You know, not unattainable from most small to medium businesses, really, for whatever purpose you may have for them. Um, they didn't really have much to show because it's hard to even something that size to bring a satellite into a, into a venue. But um, I know this is big business and it's a growing market and it's quite fascinating. I find it fascinating. Casting aside the whole problem potentially of, you know, junk in space, it's uh, it's interesting to see the space race kind of hotting up, but as is always what happens, not in the way we expected. Coming back down to Earth, Horus Prosthetics, making a prosthetic leg primarily for the developing world at a fraction of the price of getting it made in most hospital systems through 3D scanning and using a kind of patent-pended generic parts to make a knee joint that gave flexibility and strength without having to make it custom for every use case and then everything else of the leg filled in with 3D modeling. Uh, one of the founders of the company was using it himself. He had a missing leg, um, which is, you know, it's cool to see founders doing something that has a very personal connection to them and that they actually use their own product as well. Even though living in Germany, he could probably get something better. He's, this could be a terrible pun, but it's all that's coming into my mind. He's walking the walk. And that is basically about it. Um, we were there for a very long time on next, on the Friday, and then I went back on Monday to catch some of the more mainstream stuff. And I don't know, you start to get a bit phased by all the big TVs and things like that. And I start to, I heard, a, <laughs> I heard someone claiming a chat GPT powered TV maybe move on quite swiftly. Um, but there's always this kind of stuff there, looking at coffee machines and things like that. They're interesting, but I'm not going to bore you with the details of those. Um, I've already bored you with details of all the other things. But it was interesting to go to. Uh, I don't think there's any standout new innovations or anything like that. Sort of a quiet-ish year, reflecting maybe the general mood at the moment, but good to be back, good to see it happening. Good to seeing uh, a lot of life at Startup Night as well. That was pretty busy. Lots of other interesting companies there too. So, yeah. <laughs> On YouTube, I published my dynamic documentation video, blog version of that will be publishing towards the end of the week of release of this episode. And I also published something about Display Placer, a cool little Mac utility that lets you switch screen configurations very easily and you can hook it up to shortcuts, stream deck, better touch tool, all sorts of things to, to switch between all of those screen configurations. And the author of the application personally reached out to me, which was cool as well. Um, I have a book out, a book of flash fiction, paving the way for my novel uh, that's coming out soon, TM. It's called Small Gregarious Fiction. You can find it on Amazon, Kindle, and print on demand. You can also find it on Drive Through Fiction, where you can also find an audiobook version of it. I'll be putting that uh, somewhere else soon. I'm doing a massive overhaul to my website with branding and new pictures and all sorts of things. That is coming along. It's getting there. I will have a new video soon on digitizing the music PDFs, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think that's about it for now. A lot of other things in progress. I started a new Discord event bot with a co 
conspirator. Uh, I don't know when we'll be done with that, but it's something a bit more flexible. If you ever used Apollo, it's like it, but uh, more flexible and probably going to be free and open source as well. Um, you can track that on GitHub. There's not much to look at right now, but it is there. And I think that's about it. I have been Christian Chiller. You can always find more about me at christianchiller.com. Maybe that website will even be updated with a new look by the time you listen to this. Finally, if you enjoy the show, wherever you listen to or read it, please rate, review, share. Highly appreciated. And I'll be back soon. I'm about to hit the road. So actually my release cadence might increase as I clear through a few backlogs of interviews and to, to get the kind of current news from where I am covering at the time. If you happen to be in Bilbao or Lviv over the next few weeks, let me know because that's where I will be. And I'll be happy to speak to you. So until next time, take care, everybody, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work. <laughs>